Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And Daughter Do Death. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, Dad. Here we are, episode 26 of Dad and Daughter Do Death. That's um, six whole months. (laughs) Six months, half a year of one a week. That's pretty. uh, Pretty good going. It is, isn't it? <laughs> I'm amazed we've managed to stick at it. This yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not if anybody out there has uh, listened to all 26 up to now, yeah. then uh, congratulations. Thank you very much for your support. Thanks for sticking with us. You've joined us recently. That's it's great to have you with us. Yes, and we'll we'll keep going. Uh, yes, we will. While there are still true crime stories from the UK and Europe to talk about. Both Absolutely, old, and there's, well, there's so many, isn't there? Where there are, yeah. yeah. Surprising, <laughs> actually, just how many there are. Anything in the news this week that's caught your eye, Phoebe? So there is one thing that um, really caught my eye this morning as I was browsing BBC News, um, and it's the disappearance of Sam Heslop. I don't know if you've seen this. I totally missed it. And the article was basically like, her family have still got hope that she'll be found alive. So oh. I was like, what's this? So basically, she was on a catamaran with her boyfriend or partner um, out in the sea somewhere hot, I think, off America, and she's disappeared. And the boyfriend is refusing to give any interviews to the police. He didn't call anybody until like eight hours after he first noticed she'd gone missing. Oh, wow. It's looking very dodgy. It's been 16 weeks. They're still trying to find her and kind of holding out hope for her. Um, they've dived to see if they can find her, but they've, they've found like no trace of her. Yeah. Um, but they're still looking to try and find her. It's like, I can't believe that we missed that. So yeah, this poor girl has just disappeared. So that will be interesting to keep an eye on. This week, not necessarily news, but on Sky, we watched um, Dave Not Coming Back. Oh yeah. Um, which I think uh, listeners of this podcast would very much appreciate. Um I I try not to spoil it too much, but the the title kind of gives it away. Um, But it's it's a bit morbid. It's it's quite sad. It's a bit unnerving, especially if you don't like things like caving and potholing. But it's basically these men go on an expedition to recover the dead body of somebody who went into this underwater caving pothole 10 years before. Um, Oh, wow. And so that when they, they went on this dive and they found they saw this body was there and they were like, oh, great, we'll go back and try and rescue it for the family. So it's a story of them trying to rescue the body and what happens and what inevitably goes wrong. So um, it's a good watch on Sky. It's about an hour okay. and a half. So wow. Okay. It's, um, it's a good watch, but pretty gruesome. I'll look out for that. Yeah. Um, talking of, well, sort of natural events, I suppose, because that's kind of like that. There's been some flooding in the last week or so in germany quite a few yeah. people have lost their lives in floods but in china as well did you see that oh, the, i didn't see them oh in the train the, the, yeah the underground trains flooded and people like yeah. drowned in the trains that must be awful, horrendous yeah oh that really does that's <laughs> yeah it's a bit like potholing, I suppose. <laughs> well, I can't think of anything worse than wow. going potholing or like diving in a cave. Like these pictures, it's just pitch black and they've got like a torch and that's it. And that's all I yeah. can see. And oh God, it's just horrific. Yeah. I can't think of anything worse than 
what they were doing. I would absolutely not do that ever. Yeah. Do you remember it was like two or three years ago now when those those kids, was it a football team oh, or something? God, yeah. They went into that tunnel in Thailand, I think it was, yeah. wasn't it? And they eventually they found them alive in like a air pocket and they had to bring them out oh. one at a time. There was a nope. there was a programme, I think it was on National Geographic. I think it might have been an episode of Drain the Oceans or something. It was something slightly bizarre um, like okay. that, where they sort of show graphics of the pothole system, of the tunnel system, and how they managed to get each of the boys out um, in all the flooded tunnels and everything. It, oh, yeah. It's crazy. So horrendous. There's that story of that guy in America who went, like, potholing, but, like, dry potholing, and in, in Nutty Putty somewhere and it was like the smallest gap and he'd gone through it and he like inhaled so much to try and get through and he got through and he couldn't get back and so they sent all these teams in to go and get him out and they just couldn't get him out and um his heart just gave up from all the strength of it the exertion of it um and they just like bricked him in and just he's still there now in this cave in america because they couldn't get him out um there's one in the one in the peak district as well oh really yeah yeah so in um, there's a village in the Peak District called Castleton, which I really okay. do want to go back to sometime. It's, I've been a couple of times. It's a beautiful little village uh, in the middle of the Peak District. And there's some limestone caves there. And I went there on right. a school geography field trip back in 1977, probably. Oh, okay. a while back. It was nice. It was a good week. Um, and... Yeah, we were told the story then how potholders went down this particular shaft or tunnel, whatever, got stuck. They couldn't get him out. They were sending him food down and stuff like that, but in the end, he just died. So I think they they just, I think they pour concrete oh. down it or something to uh, encase him. What a thing! <clears throat> the thought of it is just. Bleh. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'm. I'm. You don't have to worry about me getting stuck in a potholing accident. <laughs> that is not going to happen. No, I don't think that's a a hobby for either of us, really. No, no, we're not really built to be potholers, are we? Some, no, not really. <laughs> some some people have some very strange hobbies now, as he's talking about true crime. So <laughs> yeah, 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 they're the weird people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Phoebe, tonight I'm going to tell you about Graham Young. Okay. I don't know if that's a name you're familiar with. Nope. But uh, Graham Frederick Young was born on the 7th of September 1947 in Neasden, in uh, sort of North London. His mother was Bessie Young and his dad was Frederick Young, after whom he took his second name and he had an older sister called Winifred. Now Bessie died when Graham was only 14 weeks old. Um, apparently she had tuberculosis and pleurisy. Oh, wow. or, okay. Yeah. Um, and Graham was sent to live with his uncle and aunt and Winifred went to stay with her parents. And I thought actually, okay, that might be a sign of the time. So this is like late forties if that sort of thing happened today, wouldn't the dad just sort of try and maybe? Yeah, I think so. Now I don't know. Rather than farming, farming the kids out, um, it seems a bit yeah. strange that they were split up like that. There's no real news of what Frederick, the dad, was doing, but um, 
only a couple of years later, he did remarry a woman called Molly. Okay. Uh, they moved to St Albans, and then Winifred and Graham came back to live with them. Okay. So they were sort of back as a family again after a, a few years, two or three years, when basically Graham was a baby and a toddler, really. But yeah. but he had grown really close to his aunt. So mm-hmm. I think he found it a bit of a wrench to then have to go back to a dad that he hardly knew and a new stepmother that he didn't really know. And uh, some familiar traits here. He became a very solitary child. He was... Okay. Um, he found socialization difficult with children of his own age. Now, Graham, very early on, became fascinated by poisons. Okay. And their effects That's on the normal childhood thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> on um, on people and well, yeah. He read extensively about William Palmer, who was a Victorian poisoner. Okay. He was fascinated by Hitler and Nazi Germany because of the sort of experimentation that they were doing on people oh, okay. during that time. He was also fascinated by Wiccans and the occult. And there was some bizarre cult act that he carried out where he did actually sacrifice a cat. Oh, no. He was involved Poor in the cat. sacrifice of a cat. So that's another trait, isn't it? Um, I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> killing <laughs> killing the pets, pet. killing animals, yeah. Yeah. Strange interests for one so young. Now, in 1959, so he was probably, uh, yeah, only about 11 then, yeah. Graham wow. passed his 11-plus exam, uh, which entitled him to go to grammar school. He was clearly a very intelligent young lad. Okay. He, he had this fascination with poisons, but he knew about them as well. He did a lot right. of research and he became very knowledgeable. Um, and he was already reading about advanced toxicology things because oh, he wow, had a okay. real interest in it. He was a bright kid and uh, yeah, off he went to grammar school. Nice. Now, in 1961, when he was just 13, Graham actually managed to go into a chemist and buy antimony, which is a, a poison that we're going to hear okay. quite a bit about this evening. <laughs> um, now, his knowledge of the chemistry and the effects of poisons so convinced the pharmacist that the pharmacist thought he was much older than he was. Uh, in fact, oh, okay. he was posing as a 17-year-old rather than a 13-year-old. And he had to sign the poisons register and he signed it as M.E. Evans. Not okay. sure why or what the significance of that name is, but he, he did. And he also obtained, as well as antimony, digitalis, arsenic, and thallium. So he first experimented with the effects of the poisons by somehow administrating a cocktail of them uh, to a fellow student that he was quite friendly with at the school called oh, wow. Christopher Williams. Uh, now, Christopher became very sick. The doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. Eventually, he did recover, but uh, he, he clearly had a lot of sickness going on. Uh, and it turned out that Graham was, in actual fact, yeah, giving him poisons one way or another, giving oh him God. drinks for poisons and things like that. And he was just fascinated by what, what was happening to the people that okay. he gave these poisons to. 
the thing was with Christopher Williams, when he wasn't at school, when he was at home being sick, mm. Graham couldn't see what was going on. He wasn't able to monitor him as such. Yeah. So he turned his attentions to his family where he could... That's terrifying. <laughs> where he could watch them daily, yeah. First of all, his stepmother, Molly, she suffered with vomiting and diarrhoea and pain. Uh, and then his father got the same problem and it was debilitating him for days at a time. And then his sister, Winifred, she would get really sick and uh, have diarrhea and sickness and things. And it was just thought to be a mysterious bug because even Graham himself was sick. In retrospect, it's not clear whether or not he accidentally poisoned himself or whether he actually administered it okay. on himself to try and uh, experience right, it. Okay. That's never made clear. But nevertheless, the whole family uh, became became sick. In November 1961, an auspicious month, okay. if I may say an so. An auspicious month, of course. <laughs> he actually served Winifred, his elder sister, with a cup of tea, which she found tasted really sour. So she threw it away. This is first thing in the morning when she was getting ready to go to work. She was actually on a train heading towards work when she started to suffer hallucinations. This is an hour or so after the incident okay. with the, the tea that she just took a sip of. Um, and she was taken to hospital where they discovered that she was suffering from the effects of Belladonna. Oh, wow. Okay. Known as Deadly Nightshade. Uh, anyway, Graham was... Mm. Um, talked to by his father, who is now, um, you know, better. And, yeah, he had a chemistry set and, he, he, you know, he was fascinated with chemistry and things like mm -hmm. that. They knew about that. They obviously didn't know about his fascination with poisons, but they knew he was, yeah. and they told him to stop mucking around with these chemicals. And, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh 21st of April 1962, it was actually Easter Saturday, Molly died oh, no. after she was found absolutely writhing about in pain. She was taken to hospital and she died that night. Now, her death was attributed to a prolapsed disc in her back which what? she'd suffered as a result of a car accident. Yeah, it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? That's really weird. I didn't know yeah. you could die of prolapsed discs. Uh, well, no. I mean, whether or not the, the pain was just so overwhelming it killed her or whether the yeah. they thought the prolapsed disc might have been interfering with vital functions yeah. or organs or something, I don't know, but that's what they put it down to. Interesting. Yeah. Now... Molly was cremated, and it, even though he was only sort of 14, 13, 14 at the time, mm -hmm. in the research I've done, it says that it was a Graham's suggestion that she was cremated. Oh, okay. <laughs> and even at the... It's normal. Well, yeah, have a 13-year-old stepson decide if you're going to be cremated or buried. Mind you, I suppose cremation yeah. is, um, isn't uncommon in that, in that era. Mm. And there are even reports that at the funeral, people were feeling sick, and it was later found that a jar of pickles had been um, at the wake afterwards. A jar of pickles had been laced with with something that were making people oh, no. sick. So he was absolutely obsessed with trying oh, out poisons and uh, trying to poison people. 
even though they couldn't do a post-mortem on Molly, it became apparent that Graham had been experimenting on her. First of all, with, with oh. antimony, which uh, she became tolerant of. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, and then the night before she died, he tried thallium on her. Okay. And uh, that is the dose that, that killed her. Oh, my God. Thallium he was, what, 13, 14? 13. So that was April Jesus. 1961, and he was born in September 47. So, so I yeah, think 13. he was 13, yeah, 13 and a half. Oh, God. His usual way of administering poison was by lacing cups of tea with poisons okay. and giving them to people. So he'd make a cup of tea for his dad, for his stepmom, for his sister, and in it a go. And I suppose, yeah, he wouldn't suspect, would you, that no. your son or Not your brother no. or anything was actually deliberately poisoning you. Well, um, was it saying never to kill people or was it just to look at what the effects of it were? It seems to be that it was to see what the effects were. Okay. And I think we'll see later on that that, that, that comes out even more. He was fascinated wow, okay. by the experimentation aspect of it and the effects wow. that these chemicals would have on people. Going back to his fascination with uh, Nazi Germany and yeah. all the experiments That's that were true, being yeah. done there on people, because his modus operandi at that time was basically to lace people's drinks usually mm. hot drinks he became known as the teacup poisoner even at a young age yeah so if you google the teacup poisoner or graham young i mean you'll find tons of stuff about him there's a lot out there i'm sure yeah not long after molly so graham's stepmother's death frederick the father became increasingly ill the hospital diagnosed him with antimony poisoning and he was very close to death now frederick didn't want to believe that his son was responsible although he knew of his interest in chemistry and chemicals (laughs) but his school teacher one particular school teacher mr hughes was a bit more suspicious about what was going on with with graham he actually discovered that in his desk at school, he had a vast amount of information, lots of books, lots of textbooks about chemicals and poisons. Now, the school arranged for Graham to be interviewed, apparently by a careers advisor, but it was actually a police psychiatrist posing as a careers advisor. Oh, wow. Okay. Where Graham, being is only 13, 14, was you know asked to explain what he'd like to do in the future, and it became very apparent very quickly that he had this intense interest in chemistry, in chemicals, in poisons in particular. He had an encyclopedic knowledge which alarmed this police psychiatrist quite considerably. <laughs> it almost sounds like he's got like Asperger's, and his well, thing is poison. Yeah, yep. in fact. Yeah, he he was found to be on the autistic spectrum after some um, some more research and things. Because yeah, yeah, this is exactly it. He's incredibly intelligent uh, and he knows his stuff, but he's just this like focused, tunnel vision on just one he, thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah, on on poisons and the effect on on people mainly. Yeah. So as a result of all that uh, research, on the twenty third of May, nineteen sixty two, he was actually arrested. 
He admitted to poisoning Christopher Williams, his friend at school. He admitted to poisoning his dad and sister. But no murder charges were actually brought against him for his stepmother's death because there was okay. no evidence yeah. that she'd been cremated. There'd been no post-mortem, apparently. Nevertheless, he was found guilty of these attempted murder, because that's okay. basically what they were, or at least grievous bodily harm as a result of... Uh, yeah. Of the uh, application of these poisons. So he was admitted to Broadmoor for 15 okay. years. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he, that was like a very him, long time. Well, yeah. He didn't actually serve all 15 years. Right. But um, Broadmoor is actually a maximum security hospital, it's not actually a prison. And at the age of 14, he was the youngest inmate since 1885 to have been admitted. Wow. So, but this is in 1962. So, uh, yeah, and it's through various tests and analysis of him that they discovered he, he was on the autistic spectrum, as we were just saying. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It definitely sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, within weeks of him arriving in prison, uh, one of his fellow inmates in Broadmoor died of cyanide poisoning. Right. Okay. Now, Graham Young claimed that he extracted cyanide from the leaves of laurel bushes that oh, okay. grew on the grounds. But at the time, his claims were dismissed and the death of this other inmate was recorded as suicide. That he'd actually okay. taken his own life. But in, in all this research, whatever, it, it's now thought that, yeah, maybe he was clever enough to do that, to actually extract poisons out of... All sorts of wow. things. He <laughs> he was oh clearly an absolute genius when it came yeah. to chemistry, but it was just so misguided. Yeah, if it, if it kind of using it in the wrong way. Yeah, if it could have been, if it could have been harnessed, or you know, if his intelligence and obvious skill could have been put to good use, he he could have been a a tremendous yeah. asset to to someone or some organisation. But nevertheless, while he was still in Broadmoor, on other occasions, inmates' drinks were found to have been contaminated. On one occasion, a whole urn had got what is sometimes called sugar soap or uh, okay. a sodium compound that is used for cleaning paintwork and stuff, isn't it? It's, very, yeah, yeah. it's a bit abrasive, but it's quite corrosive mm. as well, I think. And if any of them had drunk it, or if many of them had drunk it, there could have been an awful lot of... Uh, illnesses and even fertilities in the that's awful in the, in the wing of the of Broadmoor that he was in anyway Graham kept researching but he started to keep a much lower profile so there weren't any more incidents of sudden cyanide deaths or good, good. strange chemicals <laughs> found in the tea urn and uh, he was thought to yeah be growing into quite a level-headed young man in June 1970, when he was, what, about 22, a review found that he was cured of his obsession with poisons and it was recommended that he be released. Okay. So he took that news quite well, but he claimed to his psychiatric nurse that he would kill one person for each year that he had been in Broadmoor. Oh my God! Now this this quote was recorded in his notes, but it didn't change anything. <laughs> they didn't say, "Oh, in I... that case, we won't 
let you out. That, that to me is a red flag. Mm. Like <laughs> somebody on early release from a mental hospital was saying to me, I'm going to kill a person for every year that's been here. I'm thinking, yeah. hmm, yeah. maybe you're not joking. Anyway, on the 4th of February, 1971, so it's been a few months after the recommendation was made, he was actually released. Okay. So there's a bit of time between the recommendation and the actual release itself. And he was what, 23 at that time. To start with, he uh, he lived with his sister, Winifred, and her husband in Hemel Hempstead. And one of the first things he did was he started to buy poisons again. <laughs> um, this time by forging letters of authorization and going okay. to a, a, a chemist with these letters of authorization. And he managed quite quickly to acquire some antimony, antimony sodium tartrate. What is antimony? What's it used for? Uh, it, apparently, it's a, a chemical element, uh, a, a metal, basically. It's been known about for a very long time. Um, and it's been used for many centuries in a powdered form as both a medicine, I suppose, when taken in moderate doses and also yeah. for cosmetic purposes as well. That's cool. So it's a bit like That's when um, people used to put arsenic on their faces and things like yeah. that as, as makeup. And, uh... <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Like so much poison is used in cosmetics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a metal. A poisonous metal. <laughs> At least it has poisonous, yeah, uh, it does poisonous things to you, I suppose. Okay, yeah. <laughs> if, consumed enough uh, enough of it anyway not long after his, he was released in spring 1971 graham young enrolled himself on a storekeeping training course okay in slough which right. is sort of west of london mm-hmm. and he stayed in the hostel there he made friends with a bloke called trevor sparks and they would spend evenings in each other's company either at the pub or in each other's rooms, drinking wine. Now, on February the 10th, so he hadn't been at this place for very long. When I say <laughs> spring 1971, it's really winter, isn't it? But, uh, yeah. yeah, on February the 10th, Trevor became violently ill with sickness and diarrhoea, pins and needles, he had pain in his genitals. Uh, he recovered, but the symptoms reoccurred. Uh, he was a fit young man. He used to play football sort of for a local team and things, but he just couldn't play anymore. Um, oh my god! He, he just could not keep up with a game, and um, yeah, doctors were unable to find an actual cause. And eventually, in April, Trevor left the Slough area, moving away from the hostel, and eventually he gradually recovered. But mm. what became apparent later and we'll find out how uh, was that graham young had been poisoning trevor sparks with antimony then in that summer of 1971 young got a job as an assistant storekeeper at john hadland laboratories in bovington in hertfordshire not far from where his sister lives sort of uh, north of london sort of in the Hemel, Hempstead, St Albans area. Uh, He rented a room on Maynard Road in Hemel, Hempstead. Um, Now, what the company did 
John Hadland Laboratories was they specialised in optical equipment for mainly for the military. And one of the things that they made was something called a thallium bromide iodide infrared lens. Okay. Uh, again, for military use. I think it's for like night night vision okay. type lenses and very accurate lenses. I did a bit of a reading about this and it's like a coating that was on a lens and different metal compounds coated on lenses have different effects on light. Oh, wow. Okay. Things. And this particular thallium bromide iodide is, uh, is perfect for this particular military uh, okay. use. Now, even though that's what they, this company specialized in doing at the particular site where Young was working, there was no thallium on the site there. Okay. Um, it was, it was some other aspect of it. And, and he was sort of looking after the storeroom. And while he was there, colleagues found him unpredictable as a character. Some days he was surly and quiet, and others he was much more upbeat. Now, his employers had been told that he had suffered a nervous breakdown following the death of his stepmother in a car crash. And oh, that explained okay. and that explained the sort of absence of any sort of career history that he had. Okay. They didn't, they didn't have to declare that he'd been in Broadmoor for eight They years. didn't know that he'd been in Broadmoor, no. Oh, wow, okay. So uh, it was sort of a half-truth there, really, because his stepmother yeah. had been in a car crash, but that hadn't killed her. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and often, um, you know, like at lunchtimes or during the breaks and things, he would sit alone reading books on war, chemistry, Nazi Germany, famous okay. murderers, listen to true crime podcasts. No, yeah. he didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, hey, at he, least he wasn't potholing. He wasn't potholing, no. But that's uh, that, that's what he was spending his time doing. Almost immediately after he joined John Hadland Laboratories, he started poisoning his colleagues. Again, with antimony in the tea or coffee. And as the junior had just joined the company, one of his jobs was to fetch the drinks. So he had <laughs> ample opportunity to decide whose who's drink was going to get what in it. And then he could um, monitor the effects of his colleagues. Oh, my goodness. So several people fell ill immediately with sickness and diarrhoea. And they started to refer to this as the Bovington Bug, because that's the, okay. the village or the town where this particular laboratory or these, this this uh, this place was. And it became a bit of a thing. Oh, no, he's gone home with the Bovington Bug. So some of his colleagues were picked out for, let's call it special treatment. And the first one was Bob Eagle. Now, he was first poisoned with antinomy, and he had several days off work being sick and then he took a week off as a bit of a holiday after to recover I think over, he, yeah, yeah he, him and his wife went away to the seaside or something like that for, for the week and he was absolutely fine when he got back to work but pretty much immediately after he returned to work Graham put a lethal amount of thallium in his tea oh, no. and Bob was immediately extremely ill 
with pains in his back, numbness. Uh, he was taken to intensive care at St Albans Hospital. Graham Young would call the hospital regularly for updates and, and show that he was interested in what sort of care he was getting and, and how he yeah. was progressing and what have you. Nevertheless, on the 7th of July, 1971, Bob actually died. Oh, no. Now, his death was attributed to polyneuritis, or more specifically, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which um, you may have heard of. In fact, I think you know a bit more about it than I do. If you have an infection or an illness and your immune system goes into overdrive trying to fix it and it attacks your neurological system, basically, and it attacks all your nerves rather than the bad infection. Right. Okay. It's not necessarily fatal. You can um, recover from it if it's treated well and quickly, Um, but it is really serious. Yeah. Well, I mean, in this case, it wasn't actually Guillain-Barre yeah. <laughs> syndrome, but um, that's what they that's what they attributed it to at the time. Now, yeah. because his the colleagues wanted to be represented at the funeral, Graham Young was actually chosen to attend the funeral with just one other colleague because of the amount of oh interest they'd shown in uh, in how he was doing and, and all the rest of it, which in itself is somewhat bizarre yeah oh my god (laughs) and uh yeah he was heard to make several comments which were perhaps not appropriate such as it's remarkably sad that bob should come through the terrors of dunkirk only to fall victim to some strange virus Um, oh my god yeah things like that and he seemed to know an awful lot about the uh the cause of death. Okay. Um, well, I guess he'd been called in the hospital a lot. And well, he had, lot yeah, yeah, yeah. On, so. But he, he, but we get back to this sort of this intense interest and uh, yeah, his obsession with it. The funeral happened. They all went back to work, but uh, Graham Young didn't stop there with his experimentation with chemistry and, and of course drugs. he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so the next uh, the next colleague that he showed interest in, shall we say, was a guy called Ron Hewitt. Now, Ron was actually working his notice out at the time. And in fact, Graham Young had been recruited as his replacement. So they right, were sort okay. of they were working in parallel for a little while. Uh, okay. while he was sort of handing over the job to Graham. And he was given antimony and he was sick and all the rest of it, the same symptoms as everybody else. But his notice came to an end. He left the company. And when he started his new job, he was absolutely fine after that. What a coincidence. (laughs) I mean, you know, he obviously left for a reason. Maybe he was just really stressed out at this job and he was just much less stressed in his new job. Uh, That's probably what it was. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Definitely the fact of being poisoned in his old job. Now, as a result of, well, they were down one member of staff because of Bob's death and the fact that Ron had had left as well. Um, They actually promoted Graham Young very quickly, to be head storeman. Now, for a few months, he didn't carry out much poisoning. He he sort of reined himself back in a bit, except for one particular colleague, Diana Smart. Um, okay. And she was just someone else at work there. And he apparently used to just sort of lace her tea with a small amount of antimony 
whenever she annoyed him, is the way <laughs> he put it. Now, the reason we know so much about this is he actually kept a diary of all that he was doing. Oh, uh, okay. As a, the scientist in him was, you know, pretty good. He was keeping records of what he was doing and what the effects wow. were, the doses, the dates, what he was giving them, the effects on them. And in his diary, when, whenever Diana Smart annoyed him, he would write, given her however many milligrams of antimony, uh, just to give her a bit of an upset stomach, sent her home with a bit of... Wow. Yeah. His next colleague of interest was a guy called David Tilson. Now, he was given a dose of thallium in his tea, but he didn't drink the whole cup of tea because it was too sweet. He didn't have sugar in his tea. And what Graham Young had done is put sugar in to try and mask oh, okay. the taste of the thallium. So he didn't drink it all. But a, a week later, he did manage to get some more into him, maybe by not right. putting any sugar in his tea. And almost immediately, David Tilson uh, had to be admitted to hospital with numbness, breathing issues, chest pains, and really tender skin to the point where okay. he couldn't bear to have the sheet of the bed on him. Uh. Um, his hair fell out. Now, David Tilson did recover, but he was left permanently, well, damaged, really, oh my as God. a result of this uh, thallium poisoning, which sounds like it's an extremely devastating drug. Uh. And another one of his colleagues was Jethro Bat, who he also administered four grams of thallium to over two doses. Now, oh. both of those doses would have been lethal. But again, the drink was not right, and so Jethro didn't drink. Apparently, the coffee was too strong. His was coffee, not tea, so he didn't drink it. But still, he had had enough. He'd ingested enough for it to cause him pains, You know, a few other problems. He survived, but again, his hair fell out as well. Oh my God. And both he, so both Jethro and David Tilson, were left impotent for the rest of their lives as a result of the uh, thallium poison. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, his final colleague of interest was a guy called Fred Biggs. Now, he was 56 in October 1971. So he's only been there since, what, July, was it? Yeah, sort of summertime, June, June, July, I think he's been there. He hadn't been there very many months. A lot of people have become sick since he's been there. Um, the Bobbington bug has struck. Already one colleague's been killed. People not started a... to think that this was suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but only after this one. Fred okay. Biggs, who was 56, and on the 30th of October 1971, he was given three doses of thallium in his tea. That's the not... next, uh, it is. I don't know how big those particular doses were, but it was a lot. Now, the next day, he had tremendous chest pains. He couldn't walk. He was sent to Hemel Hempstead Hospital, but they couldn't deal with him. And he was sent to the London london whittington hospital basically his nervous system had been attacked and was and was shutting down he couldn't okay. speak and his skin actually started to peel off <gasps> oh my god now all of the time that he was in hospital graham young was calling his wife for updates you know oh how is he how is our dear yeah. colleague doing i'm so so sorry to hear the news but please give me updates but uh nevertheless Fred Biggs died on 19th of November 1971. So, no. less than three weeks after the uh, initial 
Yeah. Initial doses. My goodness. So, as you said, yeah, they started to get very suspicious. In fact, the management at Hadland became so concerned over this sudden spate of illnesses and deaths that they'd had in such a devastating, which had been devastating. I mean, the the actual deaths have been quite horrendous, as as we just heard. Um, And the other sicknesses in that particular department, and it really was only that one department of this sort of Mm, laboratory where this was happening, they actually instigated an investigation. Now, suspicions were raised around... Graham Young, especially Diana Smart. She she was very suspicious of him. And particularly, she pointed out that he had never got sick while being there. Of course. Uh, and his knowledge and deep interest in poisons, the things he was reading, the things he would talk about to his colleagues and whatever, they also aroused suspicions. He even argued with investigators <laughs> who said that heavy metal had not been to blame in uh, Fred's death by saying, right. but all the symptoms that he demonstrated were clearly that of thallium or whatever. And they said, no, no, it was whatever else they decided it was. I don't know what they attributed Fred Biggs's death to other than a deterioration of his nervous system. Um, but they didn't say that it was heavy metal poisoning or thallium poisoning. But... Wow. Even after he said it was. <laughs> yeah, even though even though uh, Graham Young said that it, it was. Uh, he was he was walking a very uh, narrow path, really, wasn't he, between being giving himself away completely and actually getting away with this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so basically it became apparent that he just knew too much about what was going yeah. on and the uh, effects of poisons and things. So as part of this investigation, the police discovered about his previous conviction and his stay in Broadmoor, which was a bit of a surprise to his employers and his colleagues. So Graham Young was arrested on the 20th of November, 1971, basically the day after Fred Biggs died. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, He was actually at his aunt and uncle's house in Sheerness at the time. Okay. There was nothing on him. He didn't have anything incriminating on him when they actually arrested him. But when they searched his room back in Hemel Hempstead, they found quite a large stash bottles of various poisons. He had 434 milligrams of thallium, 32.3 grams of antimony, which is enough to kill 200 people. Oh, my God. 200 times a lethal dose. Jesus. He was also found to have in his possession atropine and digitalis. Digitalis, is okay. um, that comes from foxgloves. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, it's a sort of a chemical, I suppose, that comes from, yeah, okay. foxglove Herbal plants. poison. Yeah, herbal poison. It's used for treatment of heart heart problems, but if you have too much of it, you uh, can... Uh, okay. Kill you. Yeah. <laughs> His room was covered in swastikas and pictures of Hitler and Nazi and Nazi experiments and things like that. And police found his diary in which he'd noted, as I mentioned earlier, all the doses, the effects, uh, and even whether he was going to allow these people to live or die. Oh, my God. That's pretty incriminating. Yeah. And his colleagues were identified by their initials. 
Oh, wow, like okay. F for Fred, D for Dave, and, and, and so on. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and it was quite clear, in fact, I think he, he actually admitted that he viewed them as scientific experiments, not people, not colleagues, not friends. Wow. He actually spent 20 minutes explaining the effects of thallium on the human body to the police when they were interviewing him. Oh, my God. <laughs> So I think wow. they had quite a lot of evidence. Uh, you know, yeah. he'd been he'd been rumbled. I'd say so. He was charged on a number of counts: two counts of murder, two attempted murder, four counts of administration of a poison, and he pleaded not guilty. Now that was okay. a problem in itself because no one would agree to represent him in court. <laughs> oh no! Um, eventually, though, one QC did agree to represent him but it took a while to find anybody that would uh, take on that role the trial started on the 19th of june 1972 at st albans crown court and the prosecution had 75 witnesses lined up to testify against him the only person to testify in his favor was graham young himself oh no That's, that's not a good start is it no Part of the evidence uh, was that the cremated ashes of Bob Eagle were actually analysed. Oh, wow, okay. Because they hadn't been interred or scattered or anything like that. And they actually found nine milligrams of thallium actually amongst his ashes. Oh, my God. I guess it's a metal, isn't it? It's a metal, yeah. It's a heavy metal, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is the first time that uh, cremated ashes had ever been used in evidence in a murder trial and fred biggs's body when that was because they they were able to do a full autopsy on him yeah uh, his internal organs including his brain uh, were found to have thallium deposits within them oh my god yeah on the 29th of june so only really the week after not 10 days later um, after deliberating for one hour and 38 minutes, the jury came back. Not with very long the, then. <laughs> <laughs> no, came back with a verdict of guilty. Not surprising, yeah. really. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, but he requested that he would be sent to a regular prison, not back to Broadmoor. Okay. And, and that wish was granted. So he was actually sent to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. Okay. While he was in Parkhurst, he got quite friendly with Ian Brady, as in the Moors murders. Uh, No way. Yeah. And in Ian Brady's book, The Gates of Janus, it details a number of different serial killers. And there's a whole chapter on Graham Young that he writes about. Yeah. In 1990, on the 1st of August, Graham Mm -hmm. Young did actually die at the age of 42 in prison. It was attributed to a heart attack. Okay. But there is suspicion around that, whether or not he actually created a poison for himself uh, to kill himself or whether other inmates decided that they didn't want him around anymore because there was always the risk of him poisoning them as yeah, he did when, there was, when he was in Broadmoor. So one way or another, he died at the age of oh, 42 yeah. in, in August 1990. 
so that's that's the end of his life, really, and what happened. But there oh, are wow. several spin-offs from that. Uh, almost immediately after he was sentenced back in 1972, the Home Secretary at the time, a guy called Reginald Maudlin, started an inquiry into the way in which mentally ill criminals were dealt with and a review in the way in which they were released back in society was okay. undertaken. As a result, there are much stricter reviews that needs to be done. Not just one doctor, but a panel of doctors had to agree that a particular person was suitable for for release. So there were a lot of reforms around the the, the treatment of mentally ill criminals, including the establishment of medium secure units. So whereas Broadmoor uh, okay. was a high secure, um, most health regions in England and Wales now have a medium secure unit. Mm-hmm. Which, which is part of the health system, apparently, rather than the uh, prison That's system. That's interesting. So, yeah. So there are a few things to come out of, of this case. There's also a couple of things that you can watch about him. There was a film called The Young Poisoner's Handbook which is sort of a okay. bit of a black comedy, but uh, that, that's available. And also you can find on YouTube, because I did, <laughs> a, a programme from 1993. It was on ITV called Crime Story. It was a series of um, true crime reenactments, true crime dramatisations. And, uh, yeah, there is one on Graham Young. So if you go onto YouTube... Ah, cool. Uh, the episode is actually called A Terrible Coldness, Graham Young. Okay. Yeah, and it was 1993, and it's on YouTube. It's it, I watched it. It was interesting. And if ever you've watched The Vicar of Dibley, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. it's got the actor in it that played Jim. Oh, and okay. Goes, no, 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 no. In fact, I think yeah. he played the part of Fred, the one that, oh, that uh, okay. died at the end. It's, uh, and yeah, from the accounts that I've read and then watching that YouTube, uh, well, I'm watching that program from 1993. They're, they're, they tally quite well together. That's so cool. It, the, the TV program. Yeah, it was, it was about 40, 40, 50 minutes, something like that. TV program basically concentrates on the second half of his life, as it were, after okay. he was released from Broadmoor. Uh, mainly for when he was working at Hadlands. But, uh, yeah, it was good. It was interesting. That sounds good. So there we are. That is the story of Graham Young and his wow. interesting story. poisons. Yeah. I'm genuinely really surprised that they sent him to Broadmoor while he was so young, um, that there wasn't any sort of, kind of like youth provision in place for him because yeah. he was so young when he went to Broadmoor. Yeah, 14. Um, and that obviously was not going to, do any good for him so obviously a very clever person who just was very misguided and didn't didn't harness their um talents in the best possible way and just wasn't given any sort of support which caused people to die yeah 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 and i think he slipped through the net with his mother dying at when he was only 14 weeks and i don't think we can really attribute that to him Fourteen no, weeks, <laughs> but nevertheless, it was a difficult start for him, and he probably slipped through a net. Maybe even if they were screening for autism at that time, I can't remember now. In the forties, would they have done? 
I don't think so. We had this conversation yeah. about something else, didn't we? Wasn't it only the seventies or the eighties that it was like yeah, nineties that it was like actually recognised as a thing? Yeah. Yeah. And then the sort of having the stepmother and the family being brought back together. Um, yeah, that would have been disruptive. Yes. Yeah, it would. And even though he was still relatively young, it might have, yeah, it would have disrupted him, I guess. All sorts of attachment issues there, I reckon. <laughs> but for whatever reason, he got this fascination with chemistry, with poisons. Yeah. And as I said before, he was clearly extremely intelligent in that yeah. respect and was fixated on it. So there's a lot out there about him. There's, uh, there's mm. a lot of twists and turns in his story, which uh, if anyone's interested in finding out more, just Google Graham Young. And, yeah, uh, no, I will. That's a great story. Thank you. You're welcome. Fascinating story. There are actually yeah. quite a few photographs from uh, from the time of, of oh, him okay. and, uh, yeah, and his colleagues and various things. So there'll be uh, quite a few to be able to put on to cool. social media pages. Fab, thank you very much. So I shall put some pictures onto our Instagram page, which you can find at... Dad and Daughter Do Death. Well, we'll put them on our Facebook page. Which is Dad and Daughter Do Death. <laughs> yeah, and if you uh, have any comments and you want to talk to us more about that particular case or anything that we've talked about before, you can email us at... Death at gmail.com. And you can always use the messaging services of Facebook and Instagram as well. You can. And if you're enjoying listening to us, thank you for listening to us. Um, And please do uh, drop us a a little comment or a review or a like. Um, And please do subscribe and download so that more people can find out about us. We've still got any merch left. There is some merch left, yes. So <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's not much, but if you want some merch. Yeah, it's been very popular. So um, yeah, Really popular yeah. merch. So if you want some, just let us know and I'll, I'll get some sent your way. Yeah, just drop us a private message and we'll uh, get something to remind you of Dad and Daughter Do Death. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for sharing that case with me tonight. Yeah, you're very um, welcome. I look forward to sharing something else with you next week i look forward to that too yeah so uh join us for episode 27 next time when dad and daughter do death